I have great pleasure in introducing Robin Arthur, a long-time member of Actors' Equity's National Performance Committee. Robin has been a proud member of Actors' Equity since her professional career began with Jesus Christ Superstar in 1975. <coughs> For almost 40 years, Robin has worked in every avenue of performance in virtually every theatre in the country. Some highlights include Away, directed by Michael Gower for the Sydney Theatre Company, the original Australian cast of Les Miserables as Madame Thénardier, directed by the legendary Trevor Nunn, and that's where these two met in that production in the late 80s. Uh, Beauty and the Beast as Mrs Potts, and the, boys from, uh, the Boy from Oz and Sweeney Todd, both directed by Gail Edwards. Favourite Australian work includes Sideshow Alley by Gary Young and Paul Keelan <coughs> and Terence O'Connell's Minefields and Miniskirts, Australian Women in the Vietnam War. You would have seen her on the small screen in City Homicide, The Librarians, Woodley and on the big screen in Charlotte's Web and this July check out the premiere season of Geoffrey Atherton's Mother and Son at the Comedy Theatre directed by Roger, Roger Hodgman. Philip Quast. I'm sure you already know how prolific Philip's career has been, but here are just some of the highlights, and I'll talk about these as we go on. Graduating from NIDA in 1979, Philip's career has covered theatre, music theatre, television and feature film, and he has divided his time between Australia and England. Credits include The White Devil, Love's Labour's Lost, British and Tokyo Tour, The Secret Garden, Australia and London, Macbeth and Troilus and Cressida for the Royal Shakespeare Company. The Cherry Orchard, Into the Woods, Coriolanus, Democracy and Waiting for God over the Sydney Theatre Company, Ghosts, currently, His Girl Friday and The Goat or Who is Sylvia for the Melbourne Theatre Company. He won his first Olivia Award playing George's in the National Theatre's production of Sunday in the Park with George. A second Olivia Award as Graham Chandler in Sam Mendes's production of The Fix and a very greedy third for the role of Emile de Beck in South Pacific again at the National. <laughs> yes, indeed. Great. Is that a first? Yes, it is. I'll tell you it is. Uh, his TV and feature film credits include Clubland, Caterpillar Wish, Ultraviolet, Brides of Christ, Silent Witness, Inspector Morse, Midsummer Murders, and as a play school, play school presenter, I thought I like play school, <laughs> uh, play school presenter for 17 years for the ABC. <laughs> and finally, in March 2014, Philip made his New York debut in a star-studded concert production of Stephen Sondheim's musical thriller, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, with the New York Philharmonic, directed by Lonnie Price under musical direction of Alan Gilbert, and Todd and Mrs. Lovett were played by Bryn Turfell and Emma Thompson. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Richard. And a warm thank you to Don Bridges, who was a friend and colleague of both of us for many years. Um, this is very exciting. Um, I've got great pleasure in welcoming my friend and colleague, Philip Quast, to our equity conversation today, in conversation. Uh, indeed, giving up his only day off to be here with us this afternoon. Uh, so I'm going to give it a special title, Sunday at the VCA with Quast. <laughs> um, so, there's a lot to get through. It's an extraordinary career. Um, I feel like I could write a thesis about it now, Phil, about Don't. you, but I'll hold back. Um, but hot on the heels of Broadway, and more of that shortly, 
You're here in Melbourne at the MTC playing Pastor Manders yep. in Gail Edwards' controversial production of Ghosts Just Around I the I gather corner. it's become controversial, yes. It has, it, well, it's a very, yeah, yeah. It's a hot show. I've, I've just seen it. Um, I just want to ask you, just kicking straight off with this, um, Phil actually first worked at the MTC in 1984, um, so he's done many productions there. But what attracted you to this play and to this role? Well, I hadn't worked with Gail for 13 years. Uh, it's yet another one of the obsessives. Um, and uh, uh, I hadn't done an Ibsen, although I'd done three or four Chekhovs, four Chekhovs, uh, and, it was the first, and I wanted to have a tackle at something like that. Yeah. And... Um, I, just because I had already decided on doing Godot last year at the STC, I have become interested in these plays that uh, came about at the time when Expressionism was starting and in the case of... Uh, and lineage, really. And I was talking to my nephew-in-law... No, my nephew, um, by marriage, the, um, last night, how Ibsen was connected to Vedicant. Vedicant then took his connections with Ibsen and Paris back to Germany into the cabaret world and wrote for cabaret, which led to Brecht, the Weimar sort of um, cabaret area. And, uh, and I Ibsen was fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a, an interesting contrast I've picked up with, as you just mentioned, an obsessive with this, this yeah. particular role. Um, in the New York Review for Sweeney Todd, I just want to read this out to the assembled. Um, the rest of the casting is spot on. Philip Quas, musical theatre's go-to actor for repressed re religious off-kilter baritones, <laughs> is a delectably creepy Judge Turpin. Um, and also harking back to Javert days yeah. when, when we, we met. But... Uh, so there, there is well, a fascination about these types of I've I have committed suicide a lot <laughs> in um, parts that I've done on film, um, even playing Saddam Hussein in a Lee Tamahori movie. Um, oh. was interesting, but I, I find them fascinating to research. You know, in the case of Javert, as we worked together, and Gary and Viv, and uh, um, to understand where those people come from and finding that little chink where you sympathise with them. I don't think you can, ever, you can ever judge your character and say this is a horrible character. Although I found that a bit with Pastor Manders. I found his misogyny really difficult to deal with as an actor reaching my age to have to sort of be that hard on a woman. I, I found that difficult, um, even though she's yeah, supposed to yeah. be a victim and she's the driving part of the piece. But... Um, uh, I think it's to do with growing up in isolation and spending a lot of time on your own yeah. and, um, you know, working on my dad's farm and working solo. Of course, we, we have Philip's yes. father here today. He's come down. Um, who's came down for the opening of Ghosts at the Melbourne Theatre Company, so a warm welcome to you too, Cole. Um, yeah. And Carol Cross. But I... Um, I think having a sort of solitary childhood, really, just with family, um, gave me a lot of thinking time. And I sort of understand that. And my wife would say, I've got a, uh, an inherited, sorry, Dad, um, an inherited sort of Asperger's-y streak there with becoming obsessed with things. 
and I did with rock collecting or collecting orchids or fishing. I become almost a dog at a bone and I, where everything else disappears. Writing, I'll suddenly find myself... Um, if I write something, I won't get a bit for sort of... I become obsessed with it for two weeks. So I understand yeah. that side of people um, being obsessed. This, I'm glad you brought up your childhood because I was going to go into that um, a little bit there um, too at this point. Um, growing up on a turkey farm in country New South Wales, Tamworth, and this year played Broadway. So there's an extraordinary journey here. And I just wondered, um, hearing too some of, uh, just a, a tiny snippet of your highlights of your career that, that Don's just mentioned. I want to ask you, when did that kid on the turkey farm mm. have the idea, have the inspiration that you wanted to be an actor or a storyteller? I don't think I've ever got used to performing. Um, I still think I'll find what I want to do with my life. I think it's just one of the things I do. And I'm not as fond of performing as I am of rehearsal. I think once performance starts, I feel like I've lost my connection. There's a, a big element of me that wants to please the director, which is everything I tell young actors when I teach not to do. <laughs> because you should really please yourself. But there's a big ele element in me that wants to please, and that leads you to trouble as a performer. Because you, in your pressure to please the director, you often start chasing your tail and get yourself in, a, in knots. Um, so uh, That's difficult, though, if I could just pick yeah. up on that, because you are there as a performer, no matter what you're doing, to create the director's vision yes. of the piece. Yeah. And, of course, you've got a voice in there. Yeah. So that can be a very frustrating thing. Well, I think it's the constant frustrating thing for an actor. Is, mm. uh, and I, I don't think conflict's a bad thing in rehearsal. Mm. I think it's the director's job, um, if they've cast you, to guide you there without bullying and to convince you that there are better choices to make. And, and yet, at the mm. same time, I don't believe in character as such. Um, you've got what's on the page, but for rehearsals, for me, are finding the autobiographical parts of those lines in you. And that's where the mm. truth comes from. If you can imagine yourself in that situation, when you would say it, as far as immersing yourself into... And I don't like saying um, Javert, I, saying, I like saying I, you know, when he does this, when I do this, instead of doing yeah, when he... not a third person. Not a third person, mm. because... Um, the whole part of the, the, the essence and the truth is trying to put yourself into those words. And even if you're a murderer or whatever, you've got to try and find that part in you, and that's what rehearsal's about. Mm. But just go back to the farm thing. Yeah. Um, it was... Um, I loved working together as a team. I liked pleasing my dad to sort of say, you know, well, well done, son. Um, because when I did a good job for a, young, for a young kid doing a man's work, I felt really... Um, I felt really proud of myself when I had done something that, at 14, that a man of uh, 20 even couldn't do. So I wanted to work harder and harder. But there was also part of a team. At the end of the day, if you'd worked on a farm as a family, you were part of an ensemble. And you solve things together. So the coming together for the evening meal 
food tasted better or whatever because she'd spent the day working. And I sort of feel like that with rehearsal. I love that coming together in a room and problem solving. And it felt exactly like working on a farm as part of a team. Mm. The, the going on to perform later on yeah. just feels like... What was the catalyst for that film? Oh, I think I, um, I, had a, 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 I was probably a good liar and a, a big imagination <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But um, my mother, uh, we had a pianola and we used mm. to sing, so there was that element in the family. Um, we used to listen a lot of... Because I went to one teacher school, all our, a lot of our classes were done on the radio... So you'd learn, I'd be in one end of the room, the kindies are down the other, in a room not much bigger than this. So you'd have to work on your own. So there was a lot of... Um, and that connection stayed with me because I still like doing a lot of thinking time at home, a lot of thinking, a lot of sort of pragmatism in a way, but thinking about how to solve those problems or make those connections or why someone says those lines. And I learned to be able to do that on my own. Um, although I'm quite undisciplined, uh, because I'll, like a lot of writers, I'll put it off. I'll put off working as long as I can. Um, so there's an element of laziness, and I suppose the thing that makes me work hard is the fear of... I can't that word with you at all. Yeah, but the fear of being found out. <laughs> that this, this one is the one that's going to... where I'll finally be... Exposed as being. I think being, we all have that you know insecurity. <laughs> so I, I think I think insecurity drives yeah. a lot of us. Really, mm. The, mm. the fear that we're going to be caught out. And so there must have been a love of language very uh, early on. Well, I didn't read. I, well, I didn't read books much. Um, there weren't a lot of books in the house because um, there were time, but a lot of radio. Mm. But it was mainly in Tamil country and Western music. Um, so. Um, <laughs> That's a bit of a problem, although I love it now. Um, uh, Did you play a musical instrument? No, we child? didn't have time. No. The option was there, and I still can't read music, and I still have music problems. I have terrible <laughs> rhythm problems. And yet, in a, in a, um, I have really good rhythm when it comes to understanding the rhythms of a play. Yeah. Um, and, and we can and talk yes. about later for and why. And not just the plays. When I'm going to play... Um, an excerpt during this session okay. from the Don Ma recordings, um, of, if, if that's what we do, from Sunday in the Park with George, and you will marvel at the musicality of my friend here in that regard. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so language. But love of language. I don't know. Like all kids, I started, um, you know, we... And I'm not very good. I'm a bit of a charlatan as a poet. And, but I used to just... I, I remember... Starting to, I came across John Donne, and I just thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. And then I remember listening to um, Macbeth on the on the records at school when I was in first year, and I thought the story was fantastic. So the thing I loved more than anything are narratives. I love stories, and I loved all the Aboriginal stories. Um, uh, and that's the other thing I became obsessed about as a kid was places where the, I always felt this is a stolen country mm. and I always when I was out fox shooting or rabbit shooting or whatever I did um, or hunting um, I always knew where, where they'd, they'd camped I'd, I could go straight to a place and find where they were camped and where they'd been so as an amateur archaeologist even at say 13 I knew 
all the places around where where their camps were, mm. and that gave me some sense of um, history. Right. Um, I'm going all over the place here. No, that's okay. I, I've got um, you know, well, there's so much to talk about. Um, I want to get back, if I can, um, to. Well, in fact, I'll, let's talk about New York. Well, we've just okay. we've just. Well, we've Emma just Thompson been here. is the most beautiful, delightful person you could ever imagine, and she's everything you would think she would be. Um, but even so, she, she, for instance, she, I don't think she even talks about it, although she's part of this group that does it, but she adopted a Rwandan boy soldier. I did read about that. Um, when he was mm. 16, so imagine what he'd seen and done. And he's now 28, and uh, he is the most delightful person and lover of life. And she adores him, and he adores her, and... They travel around together, and that's sort of what she's like. The interesting thing about America, I found, and I've talked about this a few times, was that I think we've had so much negativity in this country in the last six years politically, the last five years, that everyone is very, very aggressive, really aggressive. And that's come from our the people at the top in our politics. And it was a thrill to go to America. It's, I know it's New York, but the politeness, mm. um, I didn't hear a swear word. And when we were working, we were seven hours behind in the tech, and Lonnie just picked up the mic with a whole orchestra sitting there, and there were 12 cameras, and they were trying to film it and do all that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of pressure. And Audra MacDonald and Bryn Turfel, and they were so not calm as the word, but they didn't dramatise their nerves. Right. All their, oh, I never got one of this, I'm so scared, I'm so nervous, because, yeah. you know, everything. Nothing was put on to you. Nothing was put on to show. Um, so you did your own drama queening in your room, yeah. and um, you didn't project your own fears on anyone else. It was sort of so well-mannered. But Lonnie would just simply say, pick up the mic and go, we're doing well, people. <laughs> and everyone would come. There was no mm. temperament, mm. no it yelling. Doesn't... I never heard a single raised voice. And it was a lot of pressure. Um, mm. And a thrill, of course, to have Stephen Sondheim come in. And I was having... Because the judge is quite a difficult part. Yeah. Um, and I was getting out of time in that whipping song because I, I can't, I can't, I'm afraid I clap in one and three. I don't, as Viv will attest to, I'm definitely a white honky. Um, I can't feel anything in two and four at all. Right, right. Um, and I have, to know, I have to know yeah. where one is with yeah. the conductor. Once I know where one is, I can, I know exactly where I am. Mm. But that's important anyway. Um, so Steve Sondheim came in and I just realised what a genius he was as a dramatist and an actor because I, I was doing, I, um, he had a, in a three, four bar, he suddenly had a five, six bar and I was ready to go on and he said, uh, and in the five, when I got to the five, six bar, I was looking at Joanna too early 
And he said, Philip, you're getting out of time. Your instincts are absolutely right. I've put in a 5-6 bar there so that you can turn your head slowly, see her and get the new thought and then go on. He said, what's happening is you're turning your head fast, you see her and you want to go. So he said, just turn your head slower for the three beats, see her on the fourth beat, get the thought on the fifth and then you can go back to your three, four bar. He didn't sit there and go, you've got to count one, two, three, you know, one, two, three, four, five. He'd actually worked out what he wanted how to do, how that moment. Yeah. And which takes me back to when I first met him, and I reminded him on this trip, trip at New York, in Sunday in the Park with George. But I yeah. went to visit him in New York about ten, when I was looking for songs for that Dom, I think, actually. Mm. And um, he, uh, he took me to the cupboard where he had all his manuscripts written. And they were all there, West Side Story and Sweeney Todd, and they were all handwritten. And when his house burnt, the flat burnt down, he nearly lost all those manuscripts, but they were in a steel cupboard. And the door was just ajar, but they survived. All those handwritten manuscripts that he did for all those things, you know, mm. incredible. And just near it, he had a whole heap of CDs that had all melted and burned into each other. And, um, and Catherine Hepburn was still alive, and she was out the back. And he yelled out, hello, Katie. Hello, Steve. <laughs> she was watering geraniums. Um, but he, uh, he showed me that when he was doing Sweeney Todd, he'd set up a chair and he had a... I, I may be lying when I said this, but I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure the exact detail. I may have exaggerated. But he did say he had a sort of frothing soap thing, so he knew how long it would take to soap. And he'd worked the out the shaving. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he'd gone... He worked out how physically it worked in order for that music to go and how long it took to put the, the cape round. And he sort of physically did it yeah. and made the music fit the action and the acting, which makes the show, when you look, turn, see her God, you know, that whole yeah. thing. He's such an actor. Mm. And that's why he's not interested in good singing sometimes. He wants it acted. Yeah. Um, and he... Uh, just to have someone explain to me that the, uh, he said, if the set for that is built too wide, he said, you haven't got enough music. So your little area is almost worked out to the size of what the original design was. And when you understand that, it's hard for musical actors sometimes when they're told they've got to say, you'd know that, Jude, when you've got to put a bag in here and get to there. And, and you say, I can't do this because sometimes it has been written by really good writers in a geographically physical set size, mm. you know? Because mm. um, Jude's done Mrs. Lovett. She certainly has. And, um, I had the and pleasure of being with her at one point. Well, you need a director to understand that. Many directors don't. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily understand the process. And for me, part of the musical, when, you, when I rehearse a musical, or try and work it out, is to replicate the process that the writer went through when the words and the music came together for the first time. In sometimes case, it's both of them together. Most of the time, it wasn't in, say, in Gypsy. Um, but uh, that's all a collaboration. And that's why I always had trouble, and I've never liked them, with, say, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Um, because the, the music is written first, 
and some poor fuck has to make the lyrics fit. Um, and I think I told this to some of the students that I've taught, is that I, when I did a Vita, I used to sit there every night and thought, because it was a, a tune that was used before and Tim had to make it fit, but when, when she stands on the balcony, Vita, and sings, you know, the truth is I never left you, I think, how do you act that? Because the sense of it is the truth, the truth is, however you act it, you can say the truth is I never left you. But you, but the intonation is, that if you were to yeah. speak the lyric, you'd go, the truth is I never left you. Um, and that makes no sense to an actor. Um, because the stress is always in the wrong place. So you have to understand that that's a fault in the writing and try and solve it. Yeah, um, if that make makes it sense. work. And yeah. make it work. But to be reminded of Stephen again, what a great teacher mm. he was, to sit there and to give that note just made me go, oh, you know. So he is very hands-on. Oh, he can be very hands-on. Because yeah. I was going to ask you that about the initial Sunday in the Park, original well, Sunday in the Park. Well, that was along with George. Trevor, coming along with meeting Trevor Nunn, which we could talk about. But mm. I had, when, when that's a long time ago now, it's 20, nearly 24 years ago. But it's still part of that canon of the actors would love to play. It's like Hamlet. You know, it's one of those great parts. Um, he, uh, I couldn't get a piece of music one day. And Jeremy Sams, who's a genius, was musical supervisor. And he said, Philip, it's one, two, three, one, two, one. And I'm counting, going one, two. But I can't count and speak at the same time and sing at the same time. It just doesn't make sense. So... Steve, I couldn't get this, and Steve said, oh, Phil, 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 just, just come here. Just, and he took me away, and he said, Steve. <laughs> and he said, um, just say the words as an actor. Hmm. And I said them, and he said, that's the rhythm, how you would say it. He said, I've written in speech patterns, and I write in speech patterns. Um, so, and that sounds obvious. It sounds such an obvious thing, except... American speech patterns are slightly different to English and Australian, sure. although we've become... Because mm. Americans stress personal pronouns more. Mm. And, um, and for, uh, you know, George looks around, he sees the park, it is depressing. George looks ahead, and it's called Lesson Number 8, which is all about pronouns. So he's deliberately made, because mm. he's such a, an academic. Um, and he said, if you stress the pronouns, then you can do the stream of consciousness which I hadn't realised. Mm. But I did this, and I went back, and he said, right now, Philip, sing it. And I sang it, and it was like a miracle. And because he'd whispered in my ear, and I didn't watch the conductor, I just spoke it, everyone said, what did he say? What did he say? <laughs> because I didn't count. Because he'd oh, just, right. he'd written it how you would speak it. Mm. Mm. And there was another moment where um, I... And it's the big problem because in music schools and theatre schools we do a lot of work on our solo pieces, our mono, yeah, monologues, yeah. because that's what we audition with. Mm. But we don't do enough, you know, in teaching over the last number of years, we don't do enough work on one, one to two, dialogue. Collective work. Yeah, collective we, work where you, yeah. you'll sing a duet. Because even if you're singing a solo person to another person, uh, a solo or a song to another person, they have to be so accurate in their musicality mm. and their reactions to the song 
Because if they move at the wrong time and you want to respond, if they walk away, for instance, and they don't walk away in the correct musical moment, you look like a stupid actor because you haven't responded with the music to accelerate to stop them or, you know, mm. if suddenly you're saying, I love you, you are... And they walk, you should, I love you, you are my... But if they've walked at the wrong time and your notes go, I love you, you are my life, you look like, you look stupid. Um, but there was, the, there's that, there was a, a thing where I, um, Dot has to say, there's nothing to say. And I had to sing, I cannot be what you want. I needed you and you left. You will not accept who I am. I am what I do, which you knew. Now I was singing and the other actor was just standing there and I couldn't get the timing. And, um, and it's because I was getting no response. So I was just acting in a vacuum. So he said, Philip, I want you to walk away. I've written it so that you can walk away for a couple of times. And he told the other actor, uh, when, he, uh, when he gets to the end of that line, go to interrupt. Otherwise, he's got nothing to act on. Mm -hmm. And in the music, you don't realise that. So I had to go, there's nothing to say, walk away. I cannot be what you want. Go to interrupt me. Yeah. Go to interrupt yeah, me. I needed you and you left again. I you like will not accept who I am. I am I what I do, which you knew, which you always knew. Gap, now that you've shut up, which I thought you were a part of. And suddenly the scene's alive. Yeah. Now, if you just sit there, there's nothing to say. I cannot be what you want. I needed you and you left. You, there's nothing. But the other actor thought, well, it's not my turn to sing, so I don't do it. And I wonder why I can't solve it musically. And this is where us that work with Trevor Nunn all go back to that whole thing of speaking the lyrics for weeks because you are able to tell the other actor what you need. And... The way musicals in my interpretation now is that um, because we're getting generic ones, we've got to get them on straight away. They've been done before. You know it the first day of rehearsal musically. You then have... We, aren't, we are denied any process. And the time to slow down... Yeah. yeah the yeah. time to slow down, build it up for ourselves, you know, because they've all been done before. See, And we have to suddenly do business and do this that's being created by another actor in rehearsal and you are denied the process. Yeah. And it's very difficult to make it your own unless you slow down. You know, and if, if you remember yeah, when we did Les Mis, we had separate music halls, but we spoke the lyrics for weeks. Mm -hmm. And what that did was allow the other, the other actor to know that if you were singing, to know, to give you the time to time their musical reactions to what you needed. And they have to be dead accurate, Incredible. even though business they seem to be too. passive business. Can I just, yes. as you, you've gone back on to Les Mis there, um, I just want to um, note around that time um, where we're talking about Trevor Nunn, who, for those of you who may not know, was the legendary director of, of um, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and we had the good fortune to spend eight weeks with him rehearsing Les Miserables in Sydney. He was there the whole time. Um, a very special time. So, yeah, I just want to quote you, Phil, here, um, where you said around this time, Javert, for me, is not the wicked witch of the West, Quasta said. In fact, there was very little material to work with in the script, in the libretto. Trevor would say things in passing like, have you read the Ten Commandments yes. recently? 
That's all it'd say. Um, if you're thirsty enough, you can follow it up. You know, now that is, and as you said, that's inspiring yeah. direction. Well, he wouldn't let me in the rehearsal room, if you remember, Viv and Gaz. I, he, I'd say, he'd say, Philip, you don't have to be here. And I'd say, what'll I do, go home? He said, no, just go outside and wait. <laughs> so I'd walk up and down, and it's sort of like a method acting, but he isolated mm. me. Mm. And if you remember, we played a game called, but my power was given to me by all you people, because we played a game called Paint Stripping Eyes, I remember one day, where oh, yeah. I had to, you all had to sit in the room, and you all had to look at me, and I wasn't allowed to do sudden movements. So everyone was there, and if I looked around like that, you all had to drop your head. If I looked around like that, these people would look at me, yeah. and they'd all have to. And if I made eye contact, you were out, if you remember. Yeah. And it went on for hours. It went on for hours, I remember, and I remember Lance Strauss and someone else was the last one left. Come in. Oh. Ah. Lance Strauss was the last one left, and we're all getting tired, except me, I was loving having this power. <laughs> um, of course. And, um, mm. and Lance Strauss eventually said, oh, fuck this, and he looked at me because he committed suicide, because he was so sick of, <laughs> of, of trying to make eye contact. But I remember standing there for ages. But what it meant was that I then didn't have to do anything because I was in dabs, that old king thing. Mm -hmm. You know, kill with looks. Mm. And, um, and which means that when I walked onto that, another brawl in the square, I was able to be still and I was looking that way and everyone on the barricade just would go. And when I'd look this way, they'd all go. And there was this little, so I didn't do anything. Now, unless you were endowed with that power, then yeah. you get all these Javers that go out and someone's doing something here and, you know, um, <laughs> but we all had yeah. to read the book. But Trevor yeah. did say to me, I, I did read, ended up reading the whole Bible um, twice and um, it was a pretty interesting read. Um, <laughs> it's pretty it's not as long as, as reading Les Mis. <laughs> um, Both Old and New Testament? Yeah, 250, yeah. Yeah. 250 pages. And in mm. fact, I've just read it again recently and it all came back because um, they're all the pages of the judgments. Mm. Um, Is this in relation to ghosts? Yeah, yeah. The to whole play, sort you of, wanted yeah. to delve into yeah, that. And again. I think sort of Gail pushed me to be a Javert with a collar in ghosts, really. Um, um, mm. You know, all that mm. stuff in the past. Um, but I think, in a, is it in. Uh, I think it's in, it's not in Ecclesiastes. No, it's in Exodus. I think when Moses comes down with the commandments, I can't remember what verse it was. Um, anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a verse, there's a, 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 a uh, one of the commandments, the judgments are more important than the commandments because they're all the laws, what happens when your ox gets into another one, when when your wife is raped and, you know, and of course animals have... hearted stuff. Yeah, animals have a greater, a, a mm. much, much more value than women. Um, of course. In the, in the Bible. <clears throat> and, mm. Some um, countries still today. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and there's, there's a fantastic thing that says you must greet strangers and you must not suppress... Uh, strangers in your land you must greet them if they are come because we were repressed and we were strangers in Egypt 
you know, and I mm. suddenly thought, where are we now? You know, we, we're sort of slightly led by a, a, a non-secular prime minister, um, really, and, and who believes in the Ten Commandments and not, doesn't believe in gay marriage and, you know, all that. And yet, there are rules in the, in the Bible that say, you know, Onan gets yes. a, better, a better deal. Who gets a better deal? Onan. Onan, I'm not familiar, sorry. Um, you know what Onanism Onan? is. Onan was the man Cantor. that spilled his seed upon the ground because mm. you're not allowed to masturbate because it right. has to be put yes. to good use. Reducing. You knew that, didn't you? So masturbation name, is, is yeah. Onanism. Oh, okay. No, never heard that expression. Because oh. it's against the law to, break, to masturbate and waste your seed upon the ground. <laughs> Tissue's okay. <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah, I thought. I wondered when we'd get down to that level. Um, <laughs> Robin and I, when we did when we did Les Mis, I've still long. got them. We've got all. Oh. We sent these little love letters to each other. Poems between yeah. let let us say, not yeah. Well, the characters of Javert and Madame Tenardier had a bit of a thing going, so there were. We sent these dog poems jolly. and the very poems, and I've still got them in a little book. Right? Yes, I've got yeah. them. Um, and <laughs> where I was going to take up a collection for you to get your teeth fixed. And yes, that's right. I had blacked out teeth at the time. But, but, but just so to finish off with Trevor, yes. Trevor, because yep. the whole history of Les Mis came from um, Trevor, of course, understanding classical text. Uh, and then yep. he's yep. he putting on um, Nicholas Nickleby. Cameron mm. sort of saw him as being able to take a giant story and portray it on stage and knew the process of how to do that. And, of course, Trevor wrote the lyrics to uh, uh, On My Own, I think, and ah. for... He wrote Something lyrics like for... Memory. He wrote, yeah, he wrote Memory. So he had a big input into mm. those things. Um, and so Trevor understood how to take a massive story and mm. shape it. Mm. And a lot of the subtlety is gone in that mess because in order to... Um, to get it in under three hours, to make it streamline it as a better story. I think it's about money, because they're trying to not save the orchestra another call. <laughs> they, they've clipped little bits out mm. here and there. Mm. But Trevor understood rhythm. Just because you make something shorter doesn't mean to say it's going to feel shorter. You can have something because the rhythms are all wrong. And I've noticed when I went to see Ladies last time in London, because they've got the machine... And how long ago was that? Oh, a year and a half ago. Right. Or two years ago, I went with Roger Allen. Um, I notice now that because they've got the machine, there's very little rubato within the... Oh, that was the thing once. Stephen Sondheim said to me, Philip, um, I, you need that moment to be a bit more rubato. But I didn't know what rubato meant, so I thought he meant vibrato. So I got it there, and we got to this moment, and I went, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> But because when I sing really loud or loud, I can't hear a thing. I can't hear anything. My, it disappears. Um, I can only, that's why I need the conductor. And literally, I have no hearing. So I have to wait until I hear the... Psh, in between the gaps. So I breathe a lot more than people know and I try and hide it. And Because um, I often think how there's huge breaths that you have to yeah. support the, the yeah. music. I'm pointing there because there is a CD in there. Um, but but I, uh, I, yeah, I, that's, I, like, that's I like vibrato because uh, I can't hear. Then if I'm not sure what note I'm on, <laughs> I just put a bit more in so I can cover the bases. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a fabulous technique. I love that. Uh, I wanted to actually, if, if I could bring up, while we're talking about um, vocals here, uh, vocal rigour, and, yep. and to have done, you know, eight Shakespeare's, or seven Shakespeare's with the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, other productions with them too, like The Secret Garden, Christmas Carol, White Devil, but, but I know, uh, and Chichester, you know, the yep. list goes on. But Cecily Berry at the RSC, I think... Uh, well, I, I'm a great, a great, great, great teacher because course. she's mm. irreverent. She also has this thing about... The voice is a funny thing because a baby can cry for hours and hours and hours and not lose its voice, as you know. Um, whereas if we did that, we'd lose our voices. Mm. Mm. But they don't because it's the essential thing for communication. And the only thing that stops a baby, they'll lose their voice, is when they dehydrate. So something happens to us. I don't know whether we go to school and we're told to shh, be quiet, and we're told to whisper, or we're suppressed, where our voice becomes something separate from us. Mm. It isn't separate from us, where we suddenly go, oh, my voice, like it's a separate entity. Mm. Yeah. And then we become paranoid about it. As performers, we go, voice is tight. When in fact what we're dealing with is something here. So Sis used to always say that it's not something separate from you, you're in charge of it. And, um, and when we did Les Mis, I, I remember having vocal trouble to the point that I used to sing the carol will vouch for this. Um, if I'd had Monday, Sunday and all day Monday off, I came to sing the show on Monday night, I couldn't sing it. So I'd sing the show, I'd start at 7.30 on Sunday night, and I'd sing the whole thing through so that my voice didn't lock down. Right. And I did that mm. for every time I did it. Mm. So it Keeping that muscle. Keeping that muscle, because it would just say, I don't want to do this anymore. Because mm. a lot of mm. that stuff was, ah, really mm. hard on the throat. Um, mm. Although I found a way of doing it up in my tonsils. But anyway, um, Sis Berry used to physically punch you and push you around to distract you so that you weren't listening to yourself and think trying to make, you know, sounds and, and monitoring it. So she'd punch you, smack you, throw you all over the place. And in teaching, I do it a lot now. You see someone tensing up. So you push them and throw them because you say, hey, look over here. It's just a card trick, you know. You follow this hand and this one's pocketing that. And that's what she used to do, yeah. is just follow that. It's basically getting your own mind. It's getting, getting your, your own, own mind. attention yeah. off yourself, isn't it? And, to say, to, and to say, look, yeah. I, I'm in charge. I'm in mm. charge here. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes I, I think when I've had vocal trouble, I think it's been a form of vocal suicide where I've literally gone, I don't want to do this, or I've had enough. And I've pushed it, and I know that I have because... Um, mm. I've wanted a break. So I've literally gone and gone, ah, done damage, so as I can have a couple of, uh, you know, a week off or something. If that makes okay. sense. Well, because you, you that's know. That's an admission. But <laughs> I, I, I think for someone who's nearing 60, my voice has stayed in pretty good nick, partially because I haven't been doing it all the time. That I have spells and take and it you off. Have, you've, and you have. And it takes about six weeks. You know, when, if I've stopped singing or acting, yeah. and then you. It takes about six weeks to get your voice into Nick again. And mm. it's interesting, you know, if you're changing registers or whatever. Uh, and again, because our rehearsal time has been cut down to four weeks, 
If you go to the gym, you haven't been for a while, it takes about six weeks before you stop puffing yeah. and you start... And it literally is a physiological thing, I, I think. Um, and, it, and often we open a show and we're not ready because we haven't physically had time for it to get there and our thoughts to be accurate. It's, it's the show fitness. The show fitness. But it's also a mental agility yeah. as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, when I have had a little bit of, you know, it can be one little thing in the show that's doing. But on the whole, comparatively, I've had very little vocal problems. And, and it goes back to Sis saying, you're in charge. Mm. Just kick it in the guts and say... I'm in charge. Don't you dictate to me what what you want to do, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you're, you're talking to your body as yeah. as it were. I yeah. just wanted to while you're on that that uh, we're on this subject. Um, I remember Philip saying to me, I'm pretty sure it was back in the Lamiest days. Um, you'd never had a singing lesson. No. And there was an Australian opera singer, I think, who'd. Who'd said was it? No, it was, was Marilyn Horn. Marilyn Horn. Marilyn Horn came to see me in Lake Mears and right. um, and with Placido Domingo. And Marilyn said to me, um, "Who are you learning from?" And I said, "Well, no one. Um, I haven't had." And she said, "Well, keep going to them. They're very good." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right. Domingo also um, was the one that said to me, "The most important thing is to warm your voice down." And that's something that actors have started to do, to siren down, you know, proper sirening, you know. And if you come off to do it, um, because often people come into the dressing room and, and that's why Domingo used to close his door and not let anyone in for 20 minutes and right. just so that he could hum gently down. The great operatic roles have the warm-up written within it, um, within the roles, you know, sometimes, but... You wonder how in the hell those, you know, those Wagnerian singers sing um, like they do for hours. But they're not doing the glottals and stuff that we do in musical theatre. Mm -hmm. I also think the Americans have an advantage because they allied a lot of the stuff. So you go, you know, I ran uh, something, I'll think, you are the promised kiss of springtime. Mm -hmm. But we have to go, you are the prom. We have to go, <coughs> we've got all those glottals in it. And, of course, opera singers are told to take them out because they're not hard. But we have to put a lot of them in and they yeah. hit our voices hard. Um, so, so, so you... Um, you no, what were you going to say? Sorry. So I envy the Americans in some way because mm. it's an easier way to sing. You know, it's so much easier. It's a great sort of dialect to sing in. And that's where yeah. the Broadway musical came from. That's how they could do yeah. that stuff because yeah. it's a different sort of sound. I do, however, think we are good singers because a lot of us have learnt to swim. Yeah, it's and, the breathing. You know, it's I the think. breathing of that breathing. that fast exchange with the mm. diaphragm of going. Uh, you know, when you swim, you're taking in a tremendous mm. amount of air in a very short space and forcing it out. Yeah. And you've got that little moment where you go. Swimming, everybody. <laughs> and when that kick exactly. comes in, and we have yep. to swim, we have to, mm. and I think that's why, because there are so many good Australian singers. Yeah, you know, per head of population, it's although more yeah, in the actors. Although recently in teaching, I've come across so many singers who don't breathe. Mm. They just don't breathe, and they haven't learned that bre the breath. Um, 
that's a whole other story. But I was going to ask you too. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up the teaching aspect because uh, Philip has been uh, teaching pro bono at some of the greatest uh, drama courses on the planet: Juilliard, RADA, um, Guildhall. Um, and last year, he was an artist in residence at NIDA. So I just want to ask, because you've, you've yeah. often said to me, look, I've Rob, I'd lo I love teaching. I'd actually really like to go back well, and just I, spend I, some I, time at, say, NIDA or... It so doesn't always work, the teaching thing. And, but mm. I love it because I am interested in process. And I've become obsessed with the fact that teachers teach in their preferred way of learning. And which is not always good for the rest of us because we have seven different ways of learning, you know, spatial and, you know, kinesthetic and oral, oral and uh, solo learning and visual, and, you know, all sorts. And um, a lot of people who teach music, um, like mathematicians, they have a particular way of uh, teaching, but it doesn't necessarily translate to a performer because a lot of actors aren't good mathematicians mathematicians because they don't have that part of the brain. Musicians, That's left and right side. Excel Musicians excel. Yeah. But they often have trouble yeah. uh, doing emotion necessarily. They can express it through music. But the very yeah. good ones, like Sondheim for instance, have a balance between left and right brain which is phenomenal. You know, that great compassion but at the same time fantastic at Rubik's Cubes. So, so you felt obviously... So a, why I wanted you know, to go I, back? I, hmm. well, I started, it's a love you have. I guess, um, giving back in a way. Well, I started getting angry at younger people um, when I was working with them in musicals. Um, and I thought... In any particular country? Yeah, here. Um, and I, I thought... I suddenly thought I was getting becoming a real... And I was, a really cranky man at not getting the respect I deserved. Um, and you don't deserve respect, you know, you're supposed to earn it. But I think, I suddenly thought, well, maybe it's not my problem, it's how they're being taught. So I took the artist in residence to have a year off to go and what, watch what young, how young people are learning and how they're being taught at drama schools. Um, there were a number of things that were fascinating. Um, I had the op as well as teaching, I had the opportunity to go in and watch, uh, uh, watch them. I watched hours and hours of different directors and people teaching. Now, teachers don't go and watch each other teach, and directors very rarely go and watch each other director director. Um, uh, and I think it's not a good thing. Mm. And I became really curious at why an actor would be really good and respond to one type of director, not because of personality, but because yeah. of the way they worked, and then another director or teacher would say, I think that student should fail. And I thought, I became a conduit between saying, well, to this one, that, that they're brilliant in this class. Um, and teachers and directors have a tremendous ego, you know, they... they they tend to believe that their way is right. And so many teachers and directors and people who do master classes work in an ideology. They have an yeah. ideology um, to almost a religious zealotry that my way works 
but it only works because that's their way of learning. Mm -hmm. And they expect those students to fit their way. And I honestly believe if a lot more teachers went and watched each other and watched each other learn, they'd take a little bit of... Because as actors, we have to do it. We have to adapt to other directors. Even though we know how we work best, we have to go from one director, we have to change from Chekhov to Shakespeare to a musical, and we have to adapt. And yet... And, and I think we should, we should... We've got to be careful because often our resistance to what a director's doing is we are hiding behind our bad habits, if you know what I'm saying. Sure. So mm. it's very confronting. The safety net sometimes. The safety net, come mm. pulling out what they say is the old tricks, you know. Mm. Um, so it's great to work with different directors and, mm. and I've been very lucky to, because I've chopped and changed to work with some of the, the best, you know. And it's, no, it's no irony that the best musical directors in the world, you know, whether it's Trevor or Sam Mendes or Nick Hyatt or whatever, that they're often classical directors who have done a lot of Shakespeare. You know, yeah. they, they are very, very good. Um, mm. So that year at NIDA, uh, I've talked about this, you know, I don't want to sort of repeat it too much, but Sondheim said 24 years ago that what's going to happen is that language will become percussive. Um, because of the, t the typing key and... Um, now, what, do you, what does he exactly mean by that? And, and um, sample an music results. Everything's percussive, percussive mm. um, where language loses its, um, its musicality because all the words will take on the same stress. So no subtlety in there? No, no. Yeah, look, um, I've said this a thousand times, and forgive me, everyone has heard it before. But he was the first one... I'll go back to him, which is the mm. biggest influence of my life. I had a copy of uh, Carousel in my dressing room, and he came in one night, and he opened it up, and he said, the gods visited them when they wrote this. And we sat down with a bottle of brandy there to about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he went through the whole thing with me. And then he went through my boy Bill. And he showed me how he wrote that he gives the musical value to the words that you would give in speech. And I remember it very, very clearly that there are three sounds you make when you speak, basically. There are, on, there are the short sounds, which are generally onomatopoeic, stop, drip, tap. And they are your quavers and your yeah. shorter musical sounds. I'm not talking about pitch here because yeah. that becomes your acting choice. Um, then there are... Um, long sounds, which in Latin generally all generalise this, but are vowel followed by two consonants, so you get half, girl, um, and then you get diphthongs, which are made up of round, and they take time. And they need to be given the musical time that you would give them in speech, so they're our longer notes, in order for the body to physically exercise that part of the body to actually go through that, those mm. gymnastics. So, he was saying that the best songs are when you give the value to those words that you give in speech. So you get, and I'll never forget, he went, look at this here, my diphthong. So it takes time to say, little, two short sounds, girl, long sound, pink, pink is longer than you think because of vowel, two consonants, you've got to go pink, pink and white, diphthong. As peaches and cream, 
So you've got two long sounds. Is she, and she's at the end of the line, and, and my diphthong, little two sounds, girl, will be half, longer sound, again, again, as bright diphthong, to give the musical value, and that's how we would speak it. Whereas when you get his, the truth is, I never left you. <laughs> so that's why he listens to that, and it's chalked down. And Mozart yeah. followed this yeah. rule, you know, la, chi, dorem, la, ma, no, open sounds. You give the, because the libretto came first. Um, so he went through the whole of that, and I went, wow. So when he breaks it, he breaks it for a reason. And so I became fascinated with what makes a good song and why some get us. You know, so we get the long and wine, winding road. So road sounds like what it is. It's a long journey. That leads to your door. And then you start to notice the assonance in or, or. You'll have to do a Beatles album. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, and if you slow it down, yeah. And you so there's that Sisberry exercise where you take all the consonants out, and you know the 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 um, consonants give you the the um, the attack whatever, and the vowels give you the emotional or the sense comes from the consonants. The emotional content is in the vowels. So if you're going to do to be or not to be, you take all the consonants out and you hear it. Ooh e or ah ooh e ah e ah e ah. And then you can hear when it speeds up. And you can hear the rhetoric, the, the, the antithesis, because you can hear where it goes, and you can hear the assonance there. Or to take arms against, you know. Would you approach every single text? And that's how I approach yeah. a song. That's how you approach a song. And that's how I approach it. So I have to go through it. And sometimes, because I tend to stress everything when I speak, I don't, because I never learnt grammar, but I will go through and, you know, if you, if you I will just, you know, look at something um, and I will, I will take all the vowels out. Mm. So if you get, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground until, so I will, or R A. And you can hear the long sounds, and then you know when it starts to speed up. Does that make sense? And you hear the assonance, and you hear the poetry in the language. And so, um, sometimes, so I've followed that right through, and I know there's an urge to have it, because rap music's fantastic to put that poetry back in and to syncopate it. Um, and uh, and there's, there's, there's a desire yeah. for, to try and hang, hang that musicality of speech back to what it was, I think. But Steve said because of pop music being ch -ch -ch and dance music, and I discovered at NIDA that... I, I did this exercise, I think I was telling you the other night, Matt, was I, that um, uh, I would say to the kids... Type out your... We'd write a, a sentence, and they, I'd say, type it on your iPads, now read it. And because they typed it, 
it was all short like that and they read it out like that, like that, and you know, it was all mm. bit, and I couldn't I couldn't hear it. So I said, right, now take those same words and write it longhand now. So they wrote it longhand and I said, now speak it. And it was completely audible. Mm. And I understood it. Now that's not to say that language won't change, because the you know, young people eventually Constant. language might it's mm. always changed. Mm. You know, change with the phone, printing press, you know, telegraph. And it's sh- but it, technology's making it change at such a rate, mm. I don't know, um, generationally, because a lot of older yeah. people, and that's always been the case, mm. have not, can't understand a thing that young people say. Now, that's always been the case, but even if someone in the 30, who were 30 now, can't understand a 12-year-old. Um, and I always thought that my parents couldn't understand what I was saying sometimes, but I was bilingual in the sense that I had one way of talking to my friends and I would come home and quickly be able to resort to speaking my parents' language at night. And I'm not sure that's necessarily happening where you appro- your language becomes appropriate to where you are. I I'm think not that sure. happens a lot. Well, it I was do. interesting, um, but Shakespeare... Yeah. when. When, if, if you're, when they did Shakespeare, I couldn't hear the music of the language at all because there's no juxtaposition of the long sounds against short sounds. So you don't get this... Um, uh, and, and, and I did a lot of research. I found this when I was at night. I had time to think, and I, I remember reading this article about this, um, the iambic pantameter, of course... Chaucer, I think, was first. I, I, this might all be wrong, Max. So I've just um, got to check how we're going here. Um, right. For and, um, yeah. and I became fascinated about where song came from, because there's this whole thing that we sang before we... We sang before we spoke. Mm. Because it was a way of... Um, of songs were a way of um, storing an it's amazing amount of, of information. You know, I suppose. Well, if we couldn't write, how did you record all your (coughs) information? Mm. So one of the ways that actors learned things quickly was to rhyme, and they, if if it was in iambic pentameter, it had a rhythm. So, which has been said, it's the length of a human breath, but I believe it was the length of a human breath under labour when you're working. Mm. So this article was talking about um, it really took off in the manner in the time of the Celts and man- the manufacturing of swords and, and weapons. So iambic pentameter came, I guess, but that someone holding a Celtic sword, which was about that long, over an anvil, pulling it, took two beaters to go boom, 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 boom. So they told stories and made up things and played games on the rhythm of... And it was a huge manufacturing industry, arms. But... Then you start taking it to another thing of how do you work together as a team? You know, if you row, you have to have someone beating it. If you're sewing, you sang. Slaves and work songs, hauling nets. All those things for, for you know, all the jigs for what shall we do with a drunk? Heave, ho, and up she row. People sang together all the time in order to work together. And with the Industrial Revolution coming, where machines did that for you, we begin to lose music coming together as a way of us working together in labour. So, um, I'm rambling on. Um, 
Well, it's, it's, it's but it's you would play different. games in a village, yeah. you know. Um, so at the end of that, someone's doing the bellows and someone's doing uh, arrows next door. So they go, chum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ting 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 And they would have played games in harmonised in order to produce these things massively. If we were all out of kilter, it would have been a mess. And, um, but uh, because it wasn't machine-driven, um, within that beat of bump, 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 we were able to have syncopation because it had human... You know, if someone went to throw a, a, a grain and they dropped it, they would still have to syncopate it to catch up or, or do something. It had a flow to it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And because everything is typed... And, and, and they found it really, the students found it really hard to feel the rhythm of um, the iambic pentameter because they, weren't, they didn't know how the juxtapose, the, the syncopation of one word, two stressed words, you know. It's interesting though when you talk about typing something, as we all know, on a computer or whatever, or you're texting or something. Um, that there's a shorthand that's, that's come into language. But also, I personally write out a role for, for myself. Yeah. I, I do that by hand. Um, I wouldn't say an entire role, but um, particularly if I have um, to do a, a, an audition quickly, I'll write the whole thing out by longhand. I just find there's a visual connection to the Well, there's text. a kinesthetic one, but yeah. when you yeah. type, you can. that doesn't mean to say... Uh, but it's interesting, if you type, you know, if you're not shortening things, you know, thanks and whatever, that's fine. And mm. a lot of people, you know, writers write on, on a keyboard, mm. but often they will then read it aloud. And that's, that's right. fine. Yeah. But a lot yeah. of what people are doing now is, after they write, it's silent, mm. but they won't necessarily exercise that part of the brain that is connected with so you don't hear it. So you don't necessarily hear it. And the other person doesn't hear it at the other end. So I found I had to do lot, a lot of games to make people listen faster. And, um, and I was amazed at how fast they learned things. You know, they would come in. And I wouldn't like to be an actor starting out now, Rob. No. I really wouldn't. Because when I started, there were no people that wanted to be actors. Um, they weren't. But now everyone wants to be a performer and, and, you know, the competition is great. And I'm in awe of them, really, at how inventive they are with technology and how they want to do their films and they do this stuff and Netflix. I I think it's extraordinary and I I really am in awe. Um, But I did discover that um, they can learn words fast, but they, they couldn't listen quickly. In other words, if you learn your words quickly, and if I spoke quickly, there was they couldn't react quickly to what I had said, and and come back quickly with their words that made sense in response to what I'm Do you doing. Even in an improvised situation. No, no, in learned stuff. Mm. You know, and there's all sorts of methods, yeah. like the drop-in method. You know, you know, mm. you've heard the drop-in method. You know, which is sort of interesting, but it doesn't take into account what the other actor is going to do. You can drop in all you want, but you're not necessarily going to respond to what the other actor says. And you can action all your words and write out all your actions, but that means shit when another act- actor says, 
does an action which mm. which has nothing to do with what you're going to respond, which makes it sound like you're not going to listen, you're not listening mm. to them. In, in the old um, well days of Hayes Gordon at the ensemble, yeah. I was involved in the method technique there. Um, we all did the actions together. Well, we all sat yeah. down as an ensemble and did those actions, plot plotted actions through a text together. But, but what do you do um, when when you're absolutely right? When suddenly you have to controlled. do and play another? It's so controlled. It's too controlled. It's too controlled, and mm. because theatre has become so directed driven now. Um, to the point where, I don't know where it came from, but I really objected to it tonight that the stage management courses and everyone are referring to, we are the actors. I don't know where it leaves the crew. And the people are the creatives. <laughs> and I think it's come from America and, you know, with shows like Mary Poppins and The Lion King where, you know, the, the directors that fly in and the sound people that fly in and the lighting people that fly in having not done a purpose. Like Trevor Nunn would hate being called the creatives because he would see it as the collaboratives, you know. But we are put on a call now where it's the actors, chop liver, and I don't know how the crew feel. I know they hate it. And the people that fly in in the last three days, you know, Cameron, are the creatives. Um, you only have to open the, if I'm, I'm going to have a bit of a dig here, the program of King Cole to, to get a picture of this because that program, um, which my friend Martin Croft had, um, the first like 20 pages are all the international creatives. You go, then there's a centre page and then you find the actors back there somewhere in the back well, of the program. It just um, means that you, that I'm not sure whether that lessens language or languages, mm. but, but we are supposed to be the one. And I'm not saying that I think we should be held up, you know, but we are speaking the words of someone that mm. bled to write them mm. often. Exactly. You know, and mm. spent a lot of time um, you know, uh, sleepless nights and, you know, that's what I said with Sondheim, you know, he's very adamant that you, you not the notes sometimes, he's not but if you, you don't change a, a thing, he doesn't mind if you sing flat because <laughs> I wasn't hitting the notes and I don't care and I was, but that's supposed to be in E flat and he says, I couldn't give a fuck what it was as long as it's acting, but on the other <laughs> hand if you change a word if you change a word, and sometimes um, if you change the rhythm, he will get upset. But not necessarily the note, the pitch. Um, can I just interrupt you there? While we're on, we're on Sondheim again. Now, we've got a choice here of just going straight to questions from the audience, or I can play you uh, Philip singing Sunday in the Park, something from Sunday in the Park with George. So we'll do both, but I just thought... Well, it's, it'd be a bit embarrassing, because it's live. I, I gather it's live. Be, yes, but... And it was we'll live at the Dom Hart, so we'll it wasn't in my studio. Okay, no, no, up. you can do it again. Yeah, they all um, want to hear it. They all want to hear it. Um, but I wrote the little bit in the middle, and um, it is um, it is live, and it had a, so it's not well recorded, and there's flat notes. And shall we do it colour and light, or just finishing the hat? I think you've got to do them both. I think because do they them go both. together because yeah. I've never. Peep, I don't think finishing Seven the hat minutes. makes sense unless, unless out of context. I won't Mitch, be able to listen I might to need your <laughs> assistance here. Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, thanks, Mitch. Could you do track seven and eight? Yes, please. 
And this is, um, I just say, Rob. Yes. Just pause it. I was really lucky because um, before he was really well known, the person who did all these orchestrations and was playing for me is Jason Robert Brown. So, um, <laughs> I mean, what can you say? Sorry. No. Um, live at the Dogmar Warehouse, 2002. Composition. Bounce. Flat. And hum. Sunday in the park with George by James and Pine and Stephen Sontan, and I got to play George. But um, I knew nothing about painting, so Carol, my wife, and I went off to Paris to the Musée d'Orsay to find his paintings. Um, we turned up in this uh, amazing building, and uh, we went in, and look, if you come from where I come from, you would never expect to see these things in, in a whole lifetime, and there they were, things you'd only ever seen in books. They were the Cezannes and, and oh, Waterloo's and Monet and um, and, uh, and Dago's and uh, Toulouse Lautrec's and, and Van Gogh's and uh, and then there was this one painting Sula well look it's made out of sort of dogs thousands millions of dogs and then I got the score that was all joined together. Talk about dogs. So much to learn. And I have to learn to paint, paint sticks, paint dogs. Sorry, darling. A baby? When? How long? But I've got to paint hats. More red. Me, a father. And a little more red. And I have to improve my articulation. Even, even. Good. I have to rehearse my intonation. Bum, 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 bum. And then I have to learn to count the beats. More red, what? More blue, two, three, four, five, six. More beer, two. I don't care what we call it, I've got to learn this song. More light, I'm right down in my gut. Never close. Colour and light was opening night. There's only colour and light. Stephen sometimes what? Yellow and white in the building. <laughs> Just blue and yellow and white. What if your baby comes on opening night? Into the air, miss. See what I mean. Hello, Stephen. How are you? No book over there, miss. That's done with green. He eats me. He hates me. Conjoined with Circle on the violet diagonal, 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 
standing by, mapping out the sky. Finishing a hat, starting on a hat, finishing a hat. Look, I made a hat. But it was after eight performance. I can't make an excuse, but it's a pity it's not a veterinary. Oh, it's wonderful, Philip. But you can hear Jason's How piano can playing. How people it. get this live at the Don Mar? How can they get this? Yes, it's live, but it, was, it wasn't a, you know... Uh, you're, more, you're always more critical of your own Yeah, although I prefer a live performance than a studio one, oh, because yes. with its faults and everything, because, yes. you know, you're having to act it. And just what... I had trouble really finding songs for this show, because I, I didn't want to have a a show with a microphone. Because as soon as you put a microphone there, something else happens. No, you... But it was really hard to find songs where you had to stand and do... Had nothing in your hand. Literally nothing. And for that I had some music. But to have to stand with nothing um, is really hard on a little intimate space because you are very exposed. And some songs you can't sing without a mic. Now, if I have a mic in my hand, I can sing, the truth is I never left you, like that. I can do it, because you are distorting, and it, and, it, and it says that it doesn't matter. But then if I take that away and go, you know, the truth is I never left you, but then I go, the truth is I never... I don't think it works in the same way. You can, you can backphrase, you can hold things, you can... You know, this is the time. But if I sat there and go, this is, it just, do you know, a microphone allows you to do something else. The technique, isn't yeah. it? I think we'll open it up to questions, yeah. um, dear people. Before you want to go to the toilet. Anyone like to? Yeah. Yes. Philip, uh, you said you, your favourite part in uh, general performance at the rehearsals, and then when you get to the performance stages, I guess perhaps not as exciting. Yeah. Um, so, do you kind of rule out discovering anything in performance? Do you, do you no, no, um, not at all. Because um, I also think uh, it's a process that directors don't like either, where you start to make the play your own, and you don't, as long as you don't give other actors notes, which I probably did a lot more when I was younger. Try not to actually give them notes, and don't talk about it too much, because what happens out there on stage is... But the cast make it their own, because the other character is the audience. And you start to feel something that's, that's good for you. And if, if during performance a director notes a show over and over and over and over too much, what it doesn't take into account is what you'll feel. I'm not saying you should... You know, you definitely need notes because you develop bad habits. Um, but after a while, you start to know the piece. Um, and I love that moment of interaction 
Of course, when a director comes back to give actors' notes after six weeks, the actors resent it because um, they feel they've been deserted. They resent getting notes because they go, well, it's all right for you. You come back, we've got to do it every night. And they, they slightly resent it and, and punish the director for deserting them. So it's a funny little animal. On the other hand, if you're too strict with them, um, you know, if you lock a prisoner in a cell for 23 and a half hours a day, they burn their beds. Um, so you have to allow a certain amount of freedom. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, so I do like discovering things, but every performance is different. I, I think the problem I have is that it's working nights. You know, as Ralph Richardson said, you know, uh, what do you do, you know, the trouble with making a you know, living is shouting at night. It's hard to do, you know. What do you do? No, I'm shouting at night. Um, I, I, do, I do like to get up early. And I'm happy when I get up early and I can go to bed at nine o'clock. I'm just a, 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 I think the best time of the day is sunset and dawn, um, which is why I like fishing. And, um, and, you know, it's being brought up on the farm. They're the best times of the day. And as actors, we miss out on both the best times of the day. Sounds like you're in the wrong I, I, I suspect that's true, but teaching I really like. I love, I love it because it's, it, it's doing that, you know. Um, uh, and I suspect it's also not healthy, working late at nights all the time and sleeping in, you know. It takes a lot of discipline. Um, no, but I don't, I don't rule it out. I just miss the problem solving. I miss that openness and sharing, and I don't mind being criticised in front of actors as long as it's not personal. I think you've re I think it's really good for other cast members to see what you're struggling with. I don't like notes given in private because you know you, it's especially for older actors. I think they should be given notes in front of younger actors because the younger actors have to. Um, see what the older actors are struggling with and how they solve those problems or not. You know, and you know, a certain element of directing is teaching, so you often will, if someone's not getting it, you will often give the note to another actor and hope they make that connection and take, on, take it on board. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. I've always wanted to ask, not particularly. I'm really worried about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, Generally, um, it's always been my thing about directors coming back after the play is open or whatever it is. Mm. This is in front of the audience. Mm. The difference between, oh, should the cast and everyone else involved in the piece, mm. as presented to the mm. public, know when the director's in or not? I don't think they should because there's an element of the naughty child about it where when the director comes back you know the director's back in you go back to doing what the director so there's a certain element of willfulness about actors because um, you might be complaining about what another actor's doing I'm talking about musicals um, on the whole and when the director's in and they know, they stop doing it. Which means they know that they're doing something which is not... Yes, I understand. Um, but it's a, it's a sort of tough element being a, a resident director because I, I think a lot of it is about... And company manager, because I think what you should do... Uh, discretion is everything. You cannot go to another actor and say, 
so-and-so said, especially in long-running musicals, because it's just uh, destructive, you have to keep your mouth shut. And if an actor goes and complains to a resident director, the, re the best thing often a resident director can do is to say, I will fix it, I'll look into it. Don't say anything. They go back to the actor a couple of days later and say, how's it going? They say, oh, it's much better, thank you. <laughs> and they haven't done anything. Often the actor is just um, finding it hard, doing it eight times a week. And, and interestingly, doing Godot, I, I, Hugo Weaving, I hadn't worked with Hugo for ages, and it was wonderful to watch him rehearse, an actor of that experience again. Because... I'd saw, see Richard Roxburgh go, oh, no, I, I don't want to do this. I really want to do it this way. And you could see Hugo go, well, I want it. And he'd go, no, no, it's all right, Rox. It's, all, it's okay. And he would, you'd see him work and he'd find another way of doing it, which often would be better than what he had originally done. So there's an element of um, a much more compromise because it's often not as what another actor's doing that's annoying you is not as bad as you think it is. It's just because if you're not being well looked after in a company, you're not being treated with respect, you'll often create those problems or it'll feel worse than what it is because you're bored, you feel uh, undervalued, you feel part of a machine. So there's a real... A part of you that needs to be nurtured by those around you in order to keep you happy. And I think a, a long-running musicals um, would be happier um, and they wouldn't be the problems if we were better looked after. Have I said anything? No, it's all good. Um, I think keep your mouth shut probably is the best thing. Don't trust any, you know, no, you know um, I think that's the hardest thing to do. Um, how do you look after yourself? Um, well, that's the best thing. <laughs> and preferably before the show. <laughs> and one an interval and one after. Um, I, I do think all those things, if you're allowed to do them, is to allow the cast to be a little naughty. Um, and because we are children, that's no accident, it's called a play. And it should be play, it shouldn't be a treadmill. And um, I think all the things like company barbecues and company raffles and, and those little award ceremonies and prick of the week and all those <laughs> things we have um, are fantastic. I think morale is brilliant. And I do believe that's gone a little bit, to be honest. I also, it's become, it's become um, interesting now that... Um, that we're no longer called Mr. Quast and Miss Arthur. Often it's not. It's just beginner stamp, and you're not given calls. You're often not given a call. The stage management feels that we shouldn't have a call, a special call. Um, and it's becoming because we're not the creatives. I don't mean to be cynical. I don't want to be a cranky old man, but. <laughs> There's something about the tradition. I love coming in when the stage manager and you say, oh, hello, hi, hi, Kerry, or hi, you know, whatever, and you hi, and she says, hi, Phil, and then just as it gets close to the thing and the half-hour call comes, something happens. It all changes. The stage manager becomes in charge on the book, and then it becomes Mr. Quas standby for your, you know, or the beginners, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. I like that formality because it's the bringing together yeah. of the team. 
And I equate being in a musical as like working on an aircraft carrier. That we all have our place. And there is a captain of the ship. Sometimes it's the director or the, the whatever. And we have to, as long as you do your job, everything will go fine. And I have as much respect for the person as a fighter pilot, because I'm the one up there. They're all there for us. But that doesn't mean to say I think I'm any better, because I cannot fly that plane without the person putting the fuel in. I cannot fly it at all without... I have to trust that the person doing the flies overhead has, has filled the plane and all my electrics work and communications. Otherwise, I'm going to crash. Um, and the person who cleans the toilet... If I can't shit, I can't fly that plane or I don't eat. I will, I really respect that person. But if we are, as actors, tend to be lessened in our role and we are toilet cleaners, I, I do believe there's a hierarchical system. I do. I think that's how it works. Because if any army works with a, a command system, going into war or work where everyone is equal, um... Uh, it just doesn't work. Now, that means when we come into land, I, I, I'm, I'm really not saying that I think I'm better than anyone. I, I don't. I have as much respect. But I do believe that the actors are the ones that are out there and should be accorded that thing during the show. Now, that's can be, that can be made really bad for us because if you get an actor that believes that I feel I should do that, that, you know, come on, or they treat someone like scum... Then it's up to us as actors to say, I'm sorry, you do, don't do that. Don't talk to that dresser like that. Don't throw your clothes on the ground. And I see a lot of chuck and ground, you know, and you know, and because your dresser is your best friend, your confidant, you know, you have to and I think we all have to look after each other. Um, but I do see a bit of throwing clothes on the ground and a bit of I am now. And you know, and I see you know, in a, one case, an elder, a man who's been in the business for 55 years shoved aside to go through a door. And I don't care whether I'm the leading man. That older person goes through that door before me. I do. I'm, I'm old-fashioned. But I think a show functions best on that, that sort of level. Just while it, it's, it, you know, you understand my analogy about an aircraft carrier. You're going into battle and... And you're going out there and on a campaign and it works best if you all do your job and you give you each one gets the respect. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And how we just have to pull up with the situation. Yes. Um I think things have got to change because if um we nearly got killed. People nearly yeah, got killed. People health nearly... and safety. And managers. what the actors are always compromised is that uh, for the good of the show, yeah. you can't, uh, you know, but it, I think an actor has the right, If you know, we all have the right now to work in a safe environment and that includes our mental health because a lot of us suffer from mental health and I really think that in a lot of work situations we're in, we are not... And I think it's something that people will have to address. We is, actually are. Is our mental health. Uh, there's a health study that's actually been going on for the last 18 months through um, Sydney University and Actors' Equity, and we got a lot of members to put in. There were surveys of actors online. 
So that is absolutely happening. Um, because mm. what's, what's tolerated in our business in terms of harassment sometimes and mental anguish and bullying and treatment would never be, ever be tolerated in any other work industry. It would never be tolerated. No, and, um, but it's up to us to, do, to, take, to pull it off, though, you see. And that was the case in that situation. Yes. I decided personally, when I was under that stage, that I wanted to do this job. Yes. Because it was almost at the end. And I don't know what your process was in the whole thing, but... You know. Well, you, we're all afraid. We are all afraid because if you stand up and say, you know, blah, 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 this isn't right, yeah. we won't be employed again. And I have to say, it's true. Yes. It's, it's true. You know, and if you stand up, you're a troublemaker. Um, and and I, I, I sort of believe that it will change. And it may take some person who has to, you know, suffer greatly as a result of it to... To well, set precedent, not. you know, because to that stand has up. occurred. People have been injured in a major way. But also, if I can just add into that, and I, you know, being a, an equity gal myself, um, that you know, you can actually have a voice, and you don't have to. You can go through your equity mm. channel, so that if if enough of you have a problem anyone here in a work situation, speak to the person who's your equity rep in that cast. You can remain anonymous and it will be taken to the union. The union will come into bat for you. Mm. That, that's how that, that works usually. Sometimes things can happen in an instant on a Saturday night. It's not always possible, you know, but usually they will try and be there um, around the clock. Um, so That's why I'm still avenues. a union person, because if we didn't have unions, people would still be breathing coal dust, um, mm. you know, and we'd still be breathing asbestos in some ways, you know. Yeah, uh, that's right. So the union's sort of important. It can get out of hand, but certainly in our case, I think the whole mental thing is, is, is still a worry, mm. the mental. I think we have to address mental it health. a lot. Mental health. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and our rates of of becoming alcoholics yeah. and going mad and suicide is still very high in our profession. So the health study is going to come in very oh, handy, um, which is a good thing. How long thing. have we got? On Any a lighter questions? note. Yeah, yeah. yeah question here. We've got about um, ten minutes. Yeah. Go ahead. Amazing career. And I look at it and I just see... Wait, 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 wait. Can you tell me about forming it and, and decisions that you have to make and the strategy of um, well, I suppose kids and wife and, um, and good friends um, and a good family. And I made a decision that, um, a real conscious decision that I would never um, try to stick to one thing as a career. Absolutely conscious decision. That when I'd done that sort of player, if I'd done a musical, I would get out after that because I didn't want to be known as a musical person. Um, and I still slightly feel like, you know, you talk about those Olivier Awards and it's really bad to be think, <coughs> but I felt like they're not they're of a lesser value than those who won the Olivier Award for acting. And that's still a terrible position. But if you go to America, um, you know, Audrey McDonald, those that have won Tony Awards are lauded. In the way that our sports people are, are lauded, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's and I think it is the, 
I think a lot of it to, is to do with the Jewish element within America because they put so much emphasis their their um, philanthropy on philanthropy and the arts and they understand how the arts that's why they're a strong community they understand how art literature painting whatever um, has has kept them together as a community and because it, it's it's something we can't put a price on um, because it doesn't seem to have a return, you know, but it certainly keeps families together and health and, and that sort of um, altruism is extraordinary. On, on the night of uh, a gala night we did for the Sweeney Todd, we had 200 people sit down at a sit-down dinner after all the costs were taken out. This is for the Philharmonic. They raised a million and a half dollars. Now, Peter Avani, who runs the, the NIDA... Um, trust to try and do it. They're really struggling to give to get someone to give ten thousand, because we don't have that th real philanthropy in this country from the wealthy. They tend to to buy. And the same thing happens in America, but they tend to buy sporting teams and football teams. Um, they don't necessarily put into the arts because it's not obvious. Of, um, and yet. For young people, media and the arts is nearly the most important things in their lives at the moment, generally. But I've made a conscious choice not to be the same because, um, again, partly because I, I, I'd get bored doing the same thing. I just really would. So you're based here yeah, now. Yeah, this is, this is home. Lois? Um, so how did the boy from the turkey farm get to be a performer? Uh, it was an accident. I went to uni to go to Armadale. Uh, I'd done a couple of... I think the footy team went into musicals at school um, and there was a teacher there who got the football team to come and do Pirates of Panzance or something. And they all went in as a joke and then discovered that there uh, were girls there. And, yeah. you know, and uh, those things that happen in musicals, you know. <laughs> Especially in, in amateur things, you know. <laughs> They're very risque, girls who do this. <laughs> and um, Risque, yeah. And, uh, and boys. And, um, and then, uh, as a result of that, um, when I went to uni... I was sort of interested in it. Um, there was a man called Colin George who started the... Uh, had come over from the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. He built the Crucible Theatre, which has now all been refurbished. And, and he was at university with... Um, who, uh, it was Albert Finney and Ian McKellen. There was a whole heap of people that were there together. And he could have been a great actor, but he became one of those actor-theatre managers. And he came over to start the drama course at the University of New England. And I came in contact with him. And he had a little stand up for drama. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And he had a little Greek mask hanging there. And he looked like my dad. So I went up and started chatting. And he said, and he was interested. And said, well, why don't you come and do drama? So I did that. And... Then there was, remember Maggie Kirkpatrick, the yeah. freak, you know Indeed. what I mean? Maggie is playing a here at the moment. Yes, wicked. she's formidable. Yes. And um, <laughs> she, um, we did some plays, Colin got her up, and then she knew Aubrey Mellor, and after she left, she'd sent the... Uh, Colin left the university after a year, went to the South Australian Theatre Company. And he took an amazing number of actors, you know, Judy Davis, Mel Gibson, Colin Friels, um, 
they all went there over this period of time and he took them straight out of NIDA and they went into what was a rep company. And Colin had said to me, why don't you come with me from Armadale and I was going to leave uni and go with him to join this company. But then he went to NIDA and saw the graduates and realised there really wasn't up to par and said, why don't you go? And uh, Maggie Kirkpatrick had recommended me. I still had to audition. And she'd sent me the um, audition forms and that was it. And I went off to um, NIDA and um, uh, drank a lot in the first year, drank a lot in the second year, drank a lot in the third year, <laughs> <laughs> drank a lot in South Australia. Yeah, My father right. gave, me a, bank, dad gave me a bank card just in case I got into trouble. Oh, and, <laughs> and there was, you know, Camperdown Cellars and mm-hmm. on the <laughs> God. I think we've got time for one more question. What? Bucket list roles. What ah. does that mean? In the case of, you know, um, Tilshara, um, Javert, yeah. roles that, I guess, actors of your uh, type yeah. um, that they'd love to play in yeah. Well, interestingly, a lot of it's to do with your voice placement. I mean, when I listen to that, it's high, quite high in nasal because I was having to do it eight times a week and singing for two, there was 29 songs. So it had a different placement, I've, you know. But a lot of those roles are baritone roles and lower baritones. So they tend to be the darker roles. The tenors tend to be the more romantic sort of stuff, you know. So a lot of those roles, the singing roles, have come along because they are darker and, bar- and baritone. And Les Mis follows the, the whole notion of having the tenor as the lead sort of actor, you know, the, the, you know with Valjean, and, um, and your two romantics are the tenors and the soprano, and then you go down to the mezzos for the Madame Thenardiers and, you know, those, those sort of roles. And Look, I have no ambition and I've never had to look at a role and go, I would love to play. I have absolutely no... Everything that's come has generally been that, oh, that's... In, I haven't... I, I can honestly say I've never looked at it and say, I'd love to play that role. Because... Um, and if I haven't got something, I think I can genuinely say this, I've been... I've always had the attitude I wasn't meant to have played it. Because the choice is not mine. If I was meant to have been... And, you know, I've been bad in things, but I was uh, very bad. And, um, and, and um, well, in bad productions. It's not for lack... But I don't think, in a weird, weird sort of way, I've ever been miscast. I've been misdirected many times. Um, uh, um, and I don't blame the director for all that, because it is a collaboration... You know, we are all creatives. Um, I've got to be in my bonnet about that, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, creatives. But no, because there goes disappointment. And as soon as I have designs on that part, I somehow, and someone else gets it, and I get into that area, then I'm closing off my creative spirit really I, how can you, I don't think you can be jealous of anyone and, um, and envious of anyone because as soon as you go fucking hell I wish I could write like that or I wish I could sing like that, you're fucked yes. because you're, you're killing the very thing that is 
is you. And that's why I think, you know, gossip within the industry and lack of discretion and, you know, when we're working together and, and um, jealousy and envy are not, don't help the creative spirit because they should have nothing to do with creativity. You're on a little solo journey, although in our case it's collaborative. Maybe one more. We've got to kind of be out of here in five minutes, so anybody has to do ask a question they really want to ask. Go. Go on. Um, I just wanted to know, um, with your not having vocal training, have you, have you done vocal training, like, later on in your career? Or is it just no, I, I remember going to Mary Hammond, who teaches, runs the, at the Royal Academy of Music. She runs the, um, the music theatre course, and it was a difficult course for her to start because the Royal Academy didn't want people with music... This might be familiar here. They didn't want people in musicals having anything to do with a, you know, proper high, posh opera singing and stuff. Ironically, all those graduating students from the Royal Academy of Music, if they are lucky enough to even get in a West End band, they'll be lucky. They're not going to get into any symphony orchestras. They'll all end up being teachers. So their prejudice against music theatre... I think was, um, this is a long way of answering the question. Um, but as it turned out, Mary managed to get the orchestras at the Royal Academy of Music to have to play two shows a year for the music theatre students. And those classical players found it very difficult to play Gershwin or... Um, I remember they, they couldn't get their head around West Side Story because they weren't very good at syncopation. They found it really difficult to play Sweeney Todd. And they should be able to play it. So, um, you know, it's all right to play the classical stuff, but um, I went to Mary when I was doing a piece that was written for me uh, by James Fenton and... Um, I can't remember at the moment... that was specially commissioned for the BBC called Tsunami... And there were notes that I couldn't get, and I didn't know how to do it. So I, I went and had a couple of lessons with her, and she said, oh, the problem is because you're... She knew the science of this, but she didn't give me notes on, you know, anything, except to say, if you are hitting that note hard there, you know, four bars before, your chords cannot get to there, and if you... That doesn't mean... Just, I hate hearing people go... You know, singing for uh, E, they go, eh. I hate hearing that because I want it to be E. I just do. Yes. You know, I hate that sort of stuff. And, I, and I, I'm not sure whether... The other thing that's gone out in Broadway is people are getting sick of the... The, the twang. What, the twang. They're getting sick of it. They're getting sick of what they call... What are the, the glee factor. Yes. And they're getting sick of the wicked factor. Because they're just going, oh my God, shut up! Because everyone, everyone is singing, everyone is singing too loud, and bigger is not best. You know, all the the the, the shows on telly are all about who's got the biggest voice, generally. You know? But there's definitely Audra was talking about it. You know, to drop a name, God, she's brilliant. But Audra McDonald is saying um, uh, that everyone are hating that twang now. And it's because a lot of people have hopped onto the bandwagon teaching this method of getting the loudest sound possible. Well, on that note, 
the loudest sound possible. Um, can we please put our hands together?